So for me, this weekend feels a bit like a preaching tour. I was in Portsmouth on Friday, preaching in a church that was built in 1200 AD, 800 years old. There's been worship in that place. Uh, what was amazing, I was talking on the artifacts in the British Museum. So by comparison, that building was actually a whippersnapper compared to some of the um, things I was talking about. But it was so lovely to see, uh, there was about 100 people or so there, um, uh, mostly, shall I say, uh, more mature in age. Um, and, uh, and what was so amazing was, as I was just sharing about the uh, historical reality of the archaeology that's being discovered all the time in the Middle East, uh, there were some of these uh, ladies and gentlemen literally had tears in their eyes when they realized that this book that they're building their faith on really is true. Like, it really is God's word. You can really go to the bank on it. So I just want to encourage you with that. And then yesterday, I was up at the actual British Museum doing a tour, and I had this bizarre experience happen to me. I was just finishing a bit of spiel that I was doing on some stuff to do with Egypt. And there was this gentleman who kind of edged in towards the back of our group. And that quite often happens when you're touring a group around the British Museum. And this guy was in his 60s, I would guess. He was uh, Indian-Asian of origin, and his eyes were like saucers, like this, as I was talking. And, um, and when I finished my spiel, we were about to move on to the next bit of the tour, and he grabbed my arm and he said to me, he said, Sir, I've been a student of Eastern religion for nearly 60 years, of Buddhism and Hinduism and so on. And he said, I have never heard anyone speak with such authority. Wow. Now... That's not to big me up. That's to big up the truth that was being shared. I want you to understand that because when people hear truth, they really do recognize it for what it is. It is powerful and it's life-changing. The Puritan Christians who lived in this country hundreds and hundreds of years ago, um, they had this saying that the same sun that melts butter hardens clay. It's really profound that, isn't it? The same sun that melts butter, hardens clay. And I like to kind of take that approach when I'm preaching, and I'll apply that for you really simply. My prayer is that if I do my job properly, and Holy Spirit's here, then these words, when they are delivered to you, should either melt your heart, or should make you so angry that you're really ticked off at me. (laughs) What I don't want is, that was a nice sermon. Because I really believe when we open this book, it's dangerous. Yeah, it will, it will either soothe our fears and calm our hearts or it will offend us because it rocks our worldview and says actually what we've been building our lives on isn't actually the truth. So you're welcome this morning to either get really angry or just be blubbing by the end, okay? Um, uh, but please don't do a nice sermon because I really don't want it to be a nice sermon. I want it to be something that impacts our world. Um, I wonder if you could turn up Matthew chapter 19. We'll come to that in just a moment. Um, What I want to do to open this morning is I want to drop you into the middle of a story. Uh, This is a story, uh, a little bit of testimony that concerns something that happened to me. Um, And I I just want to kind of tease it out very slowly. So first of all, the story starts at a place called New Ash Green, which is a small village um, a few miles away from here, which is where this church was birthed originally. And this church used to just have um, some offices there with a kind of top floor where there was some uh, big lounge with sofas and stuff. And that's where um, regional leaders' gatherings used to happen. Now, I was in another church at this time, and I was at one of those regional gatherings. It's called Global Legacy. And... um, 
at this particular point in this particular Wednesday morning, um, there I was pinned to the floor. I was pinned to the floor by the power of God. We had just started worshipping and God had pitched up good and proper. And somebody had just come and prophesied to me. And the truth was that prophecy was so laden with the power and the truth of the Holy Spirit that I was literally a sobbing ball of snot and tears on the floor. Picture it if you will, or maybe don't if that's not your thing. Um, And the thing was, in that moment, when I literally was just spread-eagled on the floor in this damp, soggy carpet, I knew that I was not going to go anywhere else for the next time, the, the next moment or so. It was such a special, special moment for me. And the background for what was happening there was I'd been in ministry for about 20 years, 13 of those full time. And I was passionate for God and I was hungry for revival. Um, But the truth is I was burnt out and I was disappointed and I was frustrated because I was damaged from years of trying to pursue the kingdom of God in a toxic culture. And the result of that was that every twist and turn I tried to make to kind of press into God, there are all these external pressures of religion and performance and control that really was kind of putting the dampeners on everything. So if you imagine my ministry dream was a bit like an aircraft and the dream was simply this, that this book would happen here, that that was my dream. It just felt like it was never getting off the ground. And I had literally come to the point where I was at the end of my rope. So here I was at this regional gathering. I was nothing to do with North Kent Community Church as it was then, but I was just in relationship. So I just wanted to be here because God was here. And then this prophetic word came. And I just remember lying on the floor, sobbing my heart out. You know that when you're crying so much you can't even form the words properly and dribble comes out of both sides of your mouth? I just want you to know how, like, this was a really profound moment. And I just remember kind of blah, 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 blubbing out, God, I don't care how much this costs. I've got to have it. I've got to have it. Now, you might say, well, what's the it? Well, for me, the it was that moment right there. What was happening in that moment right there? Where the power of heaven itself had totally arrested me. And God's voice through the Holy Spirit, through somebody who was just faithfully prophesying, and they didn't, they didn't realize how much God had my address that morning and how much he knew I needed to hear those specific words. And I just said, God, I don't, I don't care what this costs, but I've got to have it as my daily, everyday life reality. And something changed in that moment because suddenly there was a, a change in the way I saw the world and there was a a huge ramp up in dissatisfaction for me. And I went from no longer wanting to be one of those kind of nameless, faceless cogs in a large religious machine that tends to spit out people who are hungry or raise their heads above the parapet by saying, I think there might be more than this. I changed in that moment from being that person to being someone who was hungry to know the reality of being a son in a royal household where the father's dream is that he would use people like you and me to cover the earth with the knowledge of his glory. Like, you know the earth is covered with his glory anyway, yeah? 
God is everywhere. That's one of the basic tenets of our faith. He is not only at Eastgate, he is in millions of churches like this all over the world. But the shock for many people is he's not just in churches. He's in shopping centres and whorehouses and nightclubs and prisons and on rough street corners and under motorway bridges. His glory is already covering the earth, but the knowledge of that glory isn't. And his dream is that people like you and I, who could call ourselves sons and daughters of the king, would be used by him to make that knowledge known. And so what I want to say to you is every square meter of this planet is crying out for us to just show up and be who we are. Every square meter of this planet is crying out for us to just turn up and be heaven. You may say, how do we do that? It's really simple. It's because we carry his presence. It's because we demonstrate his power. And it's because we carry the timeless principles of his eternal kingdom. And Jesus wrapped all of that stuff up in one phrase. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven. And he said that this kingdom was so valuable, it was like a pearl of great price. That it is such an immensely valuable and important thing. That it's worth selling absolutely everything you have just to possess it. Now I want to say to you, salvation is free, yes? Amen to that. But the kingdom will cost you everything. And I say that not out of arrogance, but out of having walked that journey myself. Because as I lay there on the floor crying out, God, I don't care how much this costs, I want this. I had no idea what he was about to do. Because he went, okay, I'll hold you to your word, Mark. And in the months and years that rolled out after that, I had to leave leadership because there was a division in our church eldership over whether we really, really were serious about pursuing the kingdom on the kingdom's terms. Lots of people want the kingdom, but they don't always want it on the kingdom's terms. I ended up leaving full-time ministry. We lost a nice salary that went with that and a free house and all the other stuff, and we left a whole bunch of relationships that we'd been actually fostering for the best part of 13 years. It cost us everything. We pulled our kids out of school and we moved lock, stock and barrel over here. Because we decided we would rather sit in the back row here in a place where people say, yeah, we're we're taking God at his word than somewhere where people would argue about what the kingdom of God really was. We we just wanted it. We were that desperate. And so you've heard the saying of um, dual income, no kids. Well, when we moved, we were no income, two kids. We needed 17 miracles to make that move that we felt was from God actually possible. And he came through on every single one. So what I want to say to you this morning is, the heart of what I'm trying to share is, is we need to truly understand the value of the kingdom versus the cost that we might be asked to pay. And that's why I want to take us to what's going to seem like quite an obscure passage of scripture. But if you turn up Matthew 19, and I'm going to read from verse 11 and 12. This is Jesus himself speaking. And he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying. 
And I would say that will probably be true today. Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it's given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Now that's quite an odd passage of scripture, isn't it? Um, in case you don't know, a eunuch is a male of the human species who for some reason or other has no reproductive organs. Okay? That's what a eunuch is. And Jesus is in a really, really interesting discussion at this point. He's in one of those scenarios that I call a hostile debate. The Pharisees have thought, I know, let's test this teacher with this one. And they come to him with a question about what are the legitimate grounds for getting a divorce. Now, the reason they're doing that is because there were two schools of thinking within the rabbinic society. One of them said, and this was the conservative or the, the Shammai school, they said, the only reason that you can ever get divorced is because your partner has been unfaithful, because that actually breaks the covenant. So they've got this view. And then on the other hand, you've got the liberal view, or the Hillel school as it's called, and they believed, well, basically you could get pretty much divorced for any reason. And one of their reasons that they said you could divorce your wife was if she burnt the toast. Now, you know, I'm pretty chilled out and laid out, but I think that's, that's quite an extreme view. I mean, like, we all do stuff in marriages that winds our partners up from time to time, but basically giving them the sack because they burned the toast is quite extreme. And so they invite Jesus into this discussion, and they're both asking him this question because they want to see if he agrees with them. And he basically says, look, you don't understand. You're making a human contract, but God is making a human covenant in the spirit he joins together two things that are separate and makes them one so if you get divorced for any other reason than covenant breaking them breaking the covenant of marriage then you're effectively forcing the other person to commit adultery if they then get remarried this is such a shock to the disciples they basically say well, well who in their right mind would get divorced then it's better not to marry and jesus grabs that moment And he does something weird with it. He takes the steering wheel and he just goes hard left and drives off the road completely and starts talking about eunuchs. And he basically said, there are three kinds of eunuchs. There are those who are eunuchs because they're born that way. And by by that he means these are people who did not form properly, properly in the womb. And these particular males, when they are born, they don't have the necessary plumbing to have children and therefore get married. So they are eunuchs from birth. Secondly, says there's a second category of eunuch who are made eunuchs by other people. Now what he's got in mind here is the ancient world where people like the Babylonians, for example, would come to a city like Jerusalem, besiege it, and when the siege breaks, they would then kidnap all the men of note, people of education, princes, courtiers, And they would transfer them to their home territory in Babylon, the city of Babylon. And they would then want to utilize all that wisdom in their palace. But they don't want them reproducing after their gene pool. So what do they do? 
they give them what we call the special day out at the vets. And then Jesus says there's this third kind of eunuch. Now, I think this is hyperbole. I think he's over-egging the pudding, as it were, because Jesus did that a lot when he teaches. And he says there are some people who make themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. And I think what he's actually saying is some people choose to embrace singleness for the sake of the kingdom. And the Apostle Paul picks that up, doesn't he? He says those who are married have concerns about their family and their wife and all of those affairs. Those who are single can be devoted in their attention to God. So that's what Jesus is talking about here. And during this discussion, he introduces us to these three kinds of people. But here's what I want to do. I want to pull the focus of the camera out a bit. And I want you to understand what's really going on. Because during this discussion, Jesus introduces us to three categories of people and the root causes of why they are like they are in life. So the first category... He calls them people who are born eunuchs. Is the kind of people who are just how they are in life because, well, that's how they were born. You know, this is me. This is who I was made to be. This is just me. And then he says there's a, a second category of people who are like they are in life, who are like they are because of what others have constrained them to be. Somebody has imposed something on their life that has restricted them for the rest of their life. And then he introduces us to a third category, which is those who've made themselves something different than they were born and something different than others would constrain them to be, but have committed themselves to whatever change and adjustment is necessary for the sake of a greater cause. And there are many people in our world who are making radical changes, not for Christ, Not for the kingdom, not for eternity or eternal reward, but for a dream they've set their heart on. Maybe a career they want or a business they want to start. Or uh, for money or maybe even the body they've always wanted. You know you have to work to get the body you have. It's taken me nearly 50 years to perfect this (laughs) fine physique. Lots of people all over the place will make radical changes for the sake of a bigger cause. But Jesus makes the point here, there are those who will make radical changes for the sake of the kingdom. Now what I want to say to you is I really believe the first two categories of people are quite common in this world. You will meet lots of people who are like they are because that's just what they were born into. And you'll meet other people who are like they are because that's what other people have constrained them to be. But to find that third category is quite a rare thing. Because to be a category three person in life, you have to break the two biggest constraints in this world, which is the situation and circumstances into which you're born and the conditions which other people impose upon you. And to break those constraints actually takes guts and it takes courage. Now, what I want to say is all of these three categories are all the people you will ever meet in the world. I don't like categorizing people. I tend to like to see people as individuals. But to be honest with you, everybody on this planet will fit into one of those three categories. 
But also these three categories represent all the people you will ever meet in the church of Jesus Christ. We think about category one, people who are like they are because that's how they were born. How many times have you heard somebody say, well, God just loves me as I am? Which is really a cop out because what they're saying is I don't want to change. And it's actually a half truth because God does love us just as we are, but he actually loves us Way, 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 way too much to leave us there. Like salvation for you and me was just the start. Some people see it as the goal. I just want to get the ticket so I know I'm getting to heaven. I'll be happy with that. No, no, no. That's just the beginning of the journey. Category two people you find in the Christian world as well. They made me like this. It's their fault. Them. Him. Her. They did it. And that's actually the language of victimhood. That's somebody who refuses to take power and control over their own life and actually acquiesce and give that power and control to other people. And I'll be honest with you, in you know 24 years of being a Christian or something like that... Um, The number of times I've seen people who've been born into the same circumstances, they have perhaps had exactly the same kind of family backgrounds and makeup, they've had exactly the same kind of Christian heritage, and then some kind of disaster, whether it's relational or personal or financial, has happened to them, and yet off the back of that circumstance that occurs, one of them will flourish and become a beautiful a beautiful bud and flower that just is full of the fragrance of the grace of heaven and the other one will become twisted and gnarly and knotty and what we call a root of bitterness. And they've had exactly the same things happen to them. One of them goes, no, I'm going to take control of my life and they're not going to define who I am. And the other one goes, they did it. If you don't like what you see, it's their fault. They made me like this. We get category one and two in the church, but what I want to say to you is, category three people are the people who make changes to become something they're not already, because the reality of the kingdom is so valuable, it is so precious, that it outweighs the pain of change that is necessary to see the kingdom and experience the kingdom in all of its fullness. And here's what I want to present to you today, because I want to focus on category three, living. If we are to see the earth covered with the knowledge of the glory of God, it's going to take an army of category three people to do it. I honestly do not believe category one and two people change anything. They effectively accept what is the status quo in their own life, so they're not likely to change the status quo on planet Earth. And so if we want to see Earth covered, we need to decide whether we're going to be Category 3 people. And so I have a question for us this morning, and it's simple, but it's very profound. And the question is, is the kingdom so valuable to us that we are prepared to do just that, to take the hatchet to ourselves? And become something we're not by birth and become something that we're not that others would have us be for the sake of that kingdom. 
Are we going to be that kind of people? To make it more personal, personal, are you? Are you prepared to do that? Are you prepared to be that kind of category three person? See, Jesus' metaphor, he uses the word eunuch here, which is quite an extreme metaphor, points to the kind of change that's required. It's costly. It hurts. And so you've got to be really motivated to do that. And what could the motivation possibly be to take control of your life in that way and and totally reorganize it from the ground up? Well, he says some do it for the sake of the kingdom. Now, I don't know how you understand that phrase. I think it means one of two things. For the sake of the kingdom, you know, I do something for the sake of something because I'm hungry for it. You know, there are some people who are just so desperate and so hungry for the kingdom. They will do anything to just taste it, to just experience, to just know its reality in their own lives. But for other people, they do something for the the sake of the kingdom because they're doing it to benefit the kingdom. Because they want to see the kingdom expand and advance and, and really shape this fallen and broken and disparate world that we live in. And I want to suggest to you that actually for the sake of the kingdom is probably both of those. But the thing is, the motivation may be too costly for some of us. And what I want to say to you, if that's you this morning, if you're going, well, I'm not sure it's worth it, I want to suggest this to you. If you don't think the kingdom is worth it, could I humbly, and I mean this, humbly appeal to you that maybe you need to encounter the king. I don't mean have theoretical knowledge about him. I don't mean read about him in a book. I don't mean sing about him in worship songs. I mean actually encounter the king. The Old Testament says that he is the desire of nations. This world doesn't actually know it. But he is the desire of everything that's making their lives so painful and so wretched and so empty. He is the most amazing person in the entire history of history itself. He's so amazing, all of history centers around his birth. We are in year 2017 because he came. He is the hub of human history. And I just really, I please, uh, this is not meant to be judgmental, but I just want to say, if you're sat there this morning and going, oh yeah, yeah, rearrange my life, yeah, thanks Mark, I'm not sure it's worth it. If the kingdom doesn't mean that much to you, then it's probably because you have not truly encountered the goodness and the grace of the king. And that's what happened to me in that pool of snot and tears that day. I just knew I could never be the same. So, how do we know what a category three kingdom thinking kind of person looks like? You know, um, in Revelation, Jesus writes some letters, doesn't he, to various churches. And he kind of makes an assessment on how they're doing. Some are doing brilliant. Some are doing well, that bit's brilliant, that bit's not bad. And some of them are doing like, you've got to sort everything out now. And I think that if the king is quite happy to make assessments about his church, then the mature son and daughter of the king will willingly draw a chalk circle on the floor, stand in it and go, it's time for me to assess myself. It's time for me to consider where I truly am. Does that make sense? 
if you don't have any targets, you're probably never going to hit them. If you aim at nothing, you're sure to hit it. And so I was just trying to think through as I prayed through the message this morning about what could be some helpful markers for us. And there's lots of things we could say are markers of category three kingdom thinkers, okay? But I'm going to go for the really obvious ones. And this is not an exhaustive list. So Romans 14:17 says, The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy. Okay. Now, there are some schools of teaching that basically say, that means a third of heaven is joy. I think that's wrong. Because if you follow that logic, that means there's two thirds of heaven that's not. That's like saying, well, a third of heaven is righteous, but two thirds of it isn't. So I don't think that's the right way of looking at this. What I believe is being said is, look, when you come into the kingdom of God, which is what happens when we accept Jesus as our king, we become part of his kingdom. We are part of his people. We are in the domain that he rules. We then have righteousness. And when you have righteousness, when you are right with God, it means you're no longer at enmity with him. There's no longer open warfare. And that means you're in a state of peace. And when you're at peace with God, I can promise you this. There is only one thing to experience. Joy. There is nothing. There is nothing that can compete with that. If you're at peace with God, and you are right in his eyes, and you are chosen, you are dearly beloved. Joy. That's the only emotion. And so I just want to kind of think through those markers for a minute. What do I mean by righteousness? Well, you know that when you got saved, Holy Spirit took Jesus' righteousness, because he never sinned, and Holy Spirit kind of squished that into your being. And that means as far as God is concerned, when he looks at you, you're righteous. But you see, in the Eastern mindset, righteous isn't an abstract idea. It's rooted in real life. And that's why Jesus doesn't say, by their hearts you will know them. He says, by their fruits you will know them. And so what I want to say to you is, one of the markers of the kingdom is not that you can go, legally I know I'm righteous with God. Ta-da! It's actually saying, I am legally righteous with God, and because that is true, that's going to start showing up in who I am and what I do and how I speak and what I think about, how I treat other people, etc., etc. You get the picture. So there's a good marker. What is my practical righteousness looking like? You don't earn righteousness by being practically righteous. Practical righteousness is an outflowing of the fact he's made you righteous. Secondly, peace. You know, we've tended in the last century to focus on a gospel that deals with saving the soul. And we forget that we are composite beings. You are body, soul and spirit. And this idea of peace is not just like, yeah, peace, dude. Um, It's much bigger than that. It's the Hebrew concept of shalom, the complete wellness in all areas and all departments and all of my faculties that God's supreme governing principles are at work. So how's your peace, brothers and sisters? Paul says it, doesn't he? Don't be anxious about anything. Wow, I could learn from that one. Maybe you can too. 
I know that's one of the areas I really struggle with. Like things happen, I'm like, oh no, that's oh. And in that moment, we lose our peace. Joy, bracket strength, because in His presence is fullness of joy, and the joy of the Lord is our strength. What really bothers me is, <clears throat> in my life as a Christian, I've bumped into so many believers who, when you look at them, you would think they were actually baptised in lemon juice, not in the Holy Spirit. There are some Christians you'll meet who are so negative, if you put them in a dark room, they'd develop. (laughs) And I don't think you can meet the king and be negative. I don't think you can meet the king and be sour. Some Christians mouthwash with battery acid. No, come on. I mean, obviously I'm not talking about these Christians here. I mean, the Christians out there. (laughs) No, but sometimes we do, don't we? We say things that are horrible. I do it. Put my hands up. And all I'm trying to say is not that, you know... It's not okay to have a bad day. God forgives us. But what I'm saying is, when we are assessing our lives and we're looking for what are markers that God's kingdom has really got a hold of me, not just have I got a hold of the kingdom, but has God's kingdom got a hold of me, those are the kind of things. 1 Corinthians 4.20, the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. So we think about righteousness. We think about peace. We think about joy, but we also have to think about power. Because the reason he dies is to put back the missing piece in our lives. See, when Adam and Eve were created, it says God breathed into them. Now that's not the mechanical inflating of the lungs going on. That is something supernatural. It's the spiritual animation of Adam and Eve. In fact, if you look very carefully, after God breathes into Adam, it says, and then he became a living being. So the definition of being human, not being born again Christian, of being human is being spirit-filled. The power of God. Living here so is your life marked by power do you find yourself a powerful person do you find yourself powerful over sin powerful over deceit and lies powerful over all sorts of things the devil sickness maybe even the weather if you're feeling really bold finally I believe One of the other key markers is this principle of incursion. In Matthew 6.10 it says, pray like this. You ready? On earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. What's that? That's an invitation for God to break in from his realm which is unseen and is much more real than this realm that we live in because this realm came from that realm. It was spoken into existence by that realm. Like, you think you're experiencing real right now? C.S. Lewis says there's a day coming when 
The new heavens and the new earth are here. And suddenly everything will be like it's thicker. Time will seem thicker and have more substance to it. And joy will have more substance to it. And you get the picture. Now here's the thing. I really believe one of the key markers of the kingdom is you have a cry in your heart. In every situation you find yourself in. God, break in. God, come here now. That's what Jesus says. He says, pray like this. Kingdom now. Here, in this moment. Come. Come and change this. Come and impact this. Come and turn it upside down on its head. These are the markers we should be looking for. And I think there's a set of questions we can ask that are going to help us figure out whether we're category three or not. And it's in terms of these markers that I've just laid out for them. And they're really simple questions, but they're questions that come from heaven. I love that story when Job is feeling a bit kind of... God says, gird your loins up, boy. I'm about to ask you some questions. Were you there when the earth was created? And, and there's this is all of these questions. You know, where did the donkey get this and that? And it's a poor Job's like, Ugh. and I really believe there are questions that heaven wants to place in front of us today. And they go like this. Genesis 3.9. Where are you? Where are you? You know the story of Adam has sinned. He's covered in shame. He hears God coming, walking in the garden, and so he hides. And God says, Adam, where are you? Now, I just want to make a point. This is not a geographical question. God is omniscient. He knows all things. He knows jolly well where Adam is at this moment. It's not even a chronological question, i.e., are you at the place I want you to be at this point in your life? You know, because we... Sometimes have this idea that God has a plan for our life with points A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, A, J, K, and each one of them has a time zone. And if, you, if I sin there, then I might not be at this point when I'm meant to be at this moment in my life. No, no, it's not a chronological question. It's a teleological question. I'll explain what that means. God's actually saying, in terms of the long-term purpose and design that I had for you, where are you in relation to that? Because you see, when God created Adam and Eve, we're told that they were made in his image. Now, people debate what that means, but just a few chapters later, Seth is born to Adam. And we're told that Seth is born in Adam's image. So, image is the terminology of paternity, of fatherhood. God created Adam and Eve to be royal blood. They are to be vice regents who will exercise the government of God on earth and bring it to fruition. And in that moment when Adam has lost his identity and he's lost the rights and resources he needs to govern planet earth for God, God goes, where are you, Adam? He's helping him examine himself in terms of the very purpose for which he was created. Are you fulfilling the very reason I put you here? And Adam comes out with that wonderful lame, 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 lame excuse. Uh, you know that really good looking girl you put here with me? It's her fault. 
So I think a really great place for us to start is that question. Where am I? Secondly, James chapter 4 verse 14. What is your life? I love that question from James. He's talking to a bunch of people who said, today we'll do this, tomorrow we'll go there. And they've got this all mapped out. He goes, your life is like a mist. What is your life? And it's a really, truly humbling question. What is your life? And I really believe how you answer this question, what is your life, may help you understand the answer to question one. Where are you? Because our where are you is always conditioned by the choices we make, the beliefs we adopt, the words we declare. Does that make sense? Thirdly, this is the game changer. Matthew 16 verse 15. Who do you say I am? Who do you say God is? I did a bit of homework this morning because I was bored when I got up. And uh, over my breakfast cup of tea, I counted up all the names, metaphors, and um, titles that are given for God in the Bible. 322 in total, if you read the NIV. 322 ways of describing God. You see, if you only know Jesus as Savior, that's how you're going to access him. Oh yeah, he's, he's the one who died for my sins. Phew, ha, oh, we're going to get into heaven, that's great, ah, oh, wonderful. But what about all the other titles and names he's given? Who do you say I am, says Jesus? Get to know me, get to know my character, get to know my names. Because when you know who I truly am, you will draw on my resources in a different way. Does that make sense? If you know God is my provider, you will draw on his resources in a different way than if you know him as God who is my healer. So my question to you is, who do you say he is? My gut instinct is that there are not an insignificant number of Christians who have an under-realized understanding of who their daddy is. Question four. This is mind-blowing. Luke 18, 41. This was spoken to blind Bartimaeus. What do you want me to do for you? Now if you think about that for a moment, here's a guy, his eyes don't work. Have you ever met people who are truly blind? Like you can tell they're blind if you see their eyes. He's probably being led along by somebody. He's screaming and shouting, bumping into people. Jesus, son of God, son of David, over here. And Jesus goes, yep. Uh, what do you want me to do for you? Now, don't you think the omniscient God of the universe would know what Bartimaeus needed? But what does Jesus do? He says, what do you want me to do for you? Because I believe that if we truly know where we are with him and we understand why we are where we are with him and we truly understand who he truly is, and we grab this last one, He wants to do stuff in and through me. I promise you guys, these are great questions that will help you on your journey to being category three. You know the old proverb in Proverbs 29, 18, without vision the people perish? That is probably better understood in these terms. Without prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. 
And that means if you have vision, you will actually wear restraints. So the guy who wants to win gold at the Olympics in the 100 meter freestyle in the pool, he's going to be down the pool every morning at 5 o'clock in the morning putting in lanes. Yeah? The guy who wants to become part of the special forces, he's going to be out yomping over mountaintops with a fridge strapped to his back. The guy who wants to die of a heart attack is going to eat bacon every day and smoke 60 a day. Those are the restraints of that vision. So my question is this, if you want to be a Category 3 believer, what are the restraints that you need to wear? And I want to close with this. They are repentance and faith. Now, repentance is a bit of a bad word because we've totally made it a religious thing. You know, I'm going to beat my chest and go, I repent, I'm so sorry. (laughs) Repent just simply means change your thinking. And the problem is repent is not a once-only event. It's not like something you do when you get saved. It's a daily act of saying, does my thinking align with his thinking? Does that make sense? And faith is really simple. It's not, I believe he can do it. It's, I believe he will do it. Those are our restraints. If you get those two, the rest will follow. So let's stand. I'm just going to ask us to pray and then Catherine's going to help us bring this thing into land. Father, I just want to thank you that you have such a passion to use us, your children, to be the very agents of change on this planet. You want to use us that others might know your glory. Not theoretically, but would physically, in their own being, tangibly experience your glory. I want to thank you that you have given us that as a task. And God, if we're honest, maybe some of us feel totally disqualified from that on some days of the week. And God, we really want to be the kind of category three people who are prepared to pay the cost because your kingdom is worth it, because the king is worth it. And so I want to pray, God, that you would help each of us find in the next 48 hours some time and some space where we can sit with you and we can allow you to lovingly ask us those questions. Where are you? What is your life? Who do you say I am? What do you want me to do for you? And God, I pray as we do that, that you would take us on that journey to be in these kind of radical, crazy firebrands that take your word as your word and charge into the gates of hell, ready to rescue this planet. This planet that's crying out for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. Help us, we pray. Amen.